Next Generation Leadership, Episode 9. And it's uh, <laughs> Micah Rosales-Peterson. I'm Bruce Wirt. And today, Micah, we have a really special guest, uh, a friend of mine uh, going back. I think I've known Kurt for almost 10 years. So tell us. You just introduced him, but it's okay. <laughs> I only said his first name. We have Kurt Allen, who is going to be joining us today. He is one of the founders of Eagle Tech. He is a strategic leader, a team builder, channel visionary, award-winning leader um, from various corporations. So we're going to see what he has to say. Yeah, Kurt, before Eagle Tech, he was at Vonage. And uh, as the uh, channel chief, he was at Windstream before that. And most people know him from his uh, long tenure at X4, which uh, was one of the prominent master agencies in the country before selling to Sandler Partners way back, uh, what, maybe five or six years ago now. It's crazy how time flies. Yeah, he's a powerhouse. And, and I know he's a big mentor to a lot of my friends in this space, too. So I know he's going to have a lot of tidbits for us. Yeah. I can't wait. I, I, uh, I've um, learned a lot from Kurt over the years, and I know that you will, too. So stay tuned. Listen to this Telesystem commercial, and then we'll be back with the great Kurt Allen right here on Next Generation Leadership. In a world where businesses are striving to adapt, connect, and evolve, we're here to bring you more. More freedom to work how and where you want while keeping employees connected, productive, and engaged. More flexibility to customize solutions to tailor a simple, more agile network. And more security for an evolving cyber landscape with around-the-clock access to hands-on technical support. It's time to explore more. All right, welcome back. Next Generation Leadership and uh, Micah, we have uh, we promised a great guest today and we will never, ever let anybody down. Who do we got? We have Mr. Kurt Allen. He is a strategic leader, team builder, former executive, award-winning, amazing person. And we're so excited to have you here, Kurt. Thank you. Hey, well, thanks for having me. I can't wait to disappoint everyone thoroughly after that introduction. So. Well, Kurt, uh, we'll talk a little bit about what you're doing now in a few minutes, but I just want to go back to you and I met for the first time. You know, Carolyn Bradfield has a, a um, her own unique way of introducing people. You know, it's kind of like you got to meet this person and uh, and then you show up and you play trivia at her restaurant bar. What, Micah? Carolyn Bra who's Carolyn Bradfield? Carolyn Bradfield. So, that. all right. I'm sorry for anybody that doesn't know. Carolyn. <laughs> Carolyn started, she was in the teleconferencing business, so audio conferencing back in the day. She had copper conferencing, which eventually sold to PGI. And then she started Convey Services, which uh, you're very familiar with. And so she she runs Convey with her husband, uh, Bruce Ahern. And through Carolyn, I, I'm, I'm indebted to Carolyn because she's introduced me to so many great people over the years. And one of the first was uh, Kurt Allen, who was still at X4 when, when I met him for the first time. And that was before the Sandler uh, acquisition. So, yeah, we, we played trivia and, um, you know, Kurt held me at arm's length for a bunch of years and um, <laughs> he knew what was happening. But Kurt, tell us, um, tell us about your journey um, from there. You know, you, you ran X4 for a number of years. Tell us how you got started in that agent business and then uh, take us through the journey to when you sold it. 
Well, it's, it's funny. It actually goes back even deeper with, with Carolyn. So I too was in the teleconferencing business. I was, I was running a wholesale services group for Intercall, um, which well before Copper Services, Carolyn was like employee number four at Intercall. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got to Intercall in like 96 when it was just this little like $15 million company. And then uh, Intercall sold in 2004 to Westcorp, which now it's moved on. It's now Entrado and, and all that mm-hmm. kind of fun stuff. But we had grown it from that little $15 million business to a $450 million division of what was then Westcorp. Um, so that was about big enough for me. And so that was about the time that I <laughs> ran into Steve Braverman, who is also one of my partners in this new venture. This is Steve and I's third go around. We had a, a carrier that we were uh, uh, co-founders of in between, but uh, we started X4 back in 2004 into 2005 when we got that up and running. And then uh, we sold it in 2016 to our friends over at Sandler Partners. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that actually sent me back on the journey where I said, you know what, I forgot how, how fun uh, working on the, the carrier provider side is. So I decided I'd go do that and did uh, three years at Windstream, which was real quiet three years. If anyone knows anything about 2017 through 2019 at Windstream, with, you know, a little bankruptcy in the middle and all, <laughs> all, kinds, of, all kinds of fun stuff. And then, uh, then a, a quick stop advantage on the back half of COVID. And, and uh, then this February started up this new company, Eagle Tech. So yeah. That, right. Tell us, tell us about that. Tell us what it, you're, you're doing consulting. Yeah. So, you know, those who can do and those who can't consult. Right. So I, uh, you can do both. I know. And is, there, is there a difference? Like, does it feel weird not being, you know, at a corporation and being your own boss? Like, how is that? It, it feels like going home for me. Like, so I think we you all have to kind of what I loved. I started my career at AT&T. So I knew, you know, this is no offense. I have a lot of really good friends at AT&T, but the, the bureaucracy was very difficult and challenging for me. Uh, for those who, who know me and, you know, and can read some of the tattoos on me, I'm, I'm extremely libertarian. I'm like the uh, rugged individualist, you know, beyond measure. So the idea of, you know, being somewhere that was so hierarchical like AT&T was frustrating for me. And so when Intercall got too big, uh, you know, I got out and then we did the deal at, at, uh, at, at X4 and I kind of went back over and uh, it was almost like doing penance <laughs> going back to corporate America, but to, to come back here and to be able to wake up every day and, and do the things that we want to do to, yeah. you know, and, and like our, our concept, it's the five of us in the business, you know, 158 years in, in communications between the five of us. It's, you know, it's consulting. Say and it's 158 years. 158 years. years. Yeah. A long time. It's impressive. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because we're Asian. <laughs> yeah. Well, at, 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 50, at 53, I'm the puppy of this organization. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Braverman and I are the, are the youngest at 52 and 53. But uh, just the idea of being able to work with who we want to work with, to work in the way that we want to, in a lot of ways, like our business is predicated on, you know, the guys with experience, the anti-consultant consultants. And so we're, we're going to companies and we're saying, hey, this is how we did it and had success, uh, which is, you know, and, and we can be tactical because we actually did it. We don't have to be kind of this kind of ethereal strategic business. We'd be like, hey, this is, this is how to do it because we've done that. But we also almost get kind of a second at bat sometimes. We get to consult um, in some fashions in the way we wish we did it too. So it's, awesome. uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun, yeah. Yeah, that's the purpose, like Bruce say. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, for sure, but that's that's interesting because I think 
in my career, I've, I've learned so much. And, and that's, I think that's how you survive. You, you have to learn from your mistakes and you go forward the John Maxwell principles. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, I started my career really, um, I, I started, I guess, at, at Comcast, but my, my first real stop in executive leadership was uh, the 10 years I spent at NetCarrier. And I feel like if I knew now what I, or if I knew then what I know now, uh, I could have, we could have done even, even more uh, during my tenure there. But I, um, I think that's a great perspective on things is to come back and say, man, I didn't really do it this way, but now that I know how to do it, I'm going to teach you. <laughs> right. right. And then most, most importantly, then you get to walk away and let the young people go out and execute. <laughs> Are you consulting for, for carriers, for agents, a mix of both? How, tell me your business model. It's a mix. Um, we kind of look at three constituencies, you know, right out of the gate, the kind of pent up demand has been with providers, uh, both kind of large legacy providers in transition. And then um, the newer kind of entries to the market channel seems to be kind of the hot commodity, um, mm -hmm. certainly in my individual practice, that's, that's where my background is. So um, it, everybody's looking for ways to kind of, you know, get more out of their channel, to be more efficient in the channel. So that's a, a big part of the business. We are working with distribution, actually my largest client that will signed on this week. Um, I'm not at liberty to say who they are, but let's just say they uh, announced that they're merging with someone else to create a $57 billion distribution company uh, this morning in, in the news. So, um, so distribution is certainly a part of it. But the other part that's been really interesting is, is the investment community. So we've got relationships, and I personally have relationships with, with um, uh, private equity companies uh, one is a really interesting one where well, well, I'll be working as an operating partner for them um, with a fund out looking at acquisitions and roll-ups and, you know, a lot of the kind of capital plays that we're hearing going on in our space. So, so that'll be super interesting as well. Kurt, what do you think about all of the consolidation that's happening in this industry? Not, and it's, it, you know, I, I feel like it goes in waves. The providers all consolidate. Now the agents are all consolidating and, uh, it's, it's changed so much since since we probably both came into it. You were ahead of me, um, but the industry started. We probably both came into what what you know was then Celex uh, okay. at the same time. But it was uh, it's evolved, and, and we talked to Reggie Scales about this. It used to be I'm going to save you ten percent on your phone bill all the way down to death, and um, and now providers that, you know, the solution provider or the, the niche provider, kind of like you did at, uh, at Vonage, you're transforming business. So it's a completely different world. But talk to us about that evolution and how it's led to all of this roll up in mergers and acquisitions. Well, and I'll talk about that evolution because I think it's the magic of our model and the business that we're in, right? That that everyone knew that cloud, you know, that kind of nebulous, good pun there, right? Um, you know, a term for for kind of virtualizing solutions and and capex to opex and all that fun stuff. We, I don't think any of us realized how heavily that was going to weight things in favor of the traditional telco agent versus you know, the CP, the PBX vendor, the, the, the VAR, those guys that were, that were used to selling boxes and we were selling kind of recurring revenue. The fi financial model kind of won the day. And so what the, what the cloud has turned into is the promise that it doesn't matter how we deliver these solutions, but your connectivity, your data, 
your voice, and then all these other applications, we are the group that's going to sell that to you. Whether we do that, you know, a traditional TDM methodology, or whether we do that in early iterations of kind of PBX replacement UCAS, or whether we do that now in these more sophisticated, true unified communications platforms, it doesn't matter. Um, so like, you know, that gets you to this idea of, you know, the, this capital cycle that we're on. So we have all this money flooding to our market and it's because those guys are starting to get it that there's the threat of disintermediation. You have to be in finance to use a word with that many syllables, but they love that word is the threat of disintermediation, meaning will the master agents and the agents be taking out of, taken out of the sales process is really nil. It's not going to happen because it doesn't, if we do it through stardust, next year, you know, they're going to buy voice solutions, data solutions, and connectivity from this channel. So that's the magic of the model. So that's why, you know, we're at the end of a capital cycle. There's a lot of money on the sidelines. There's a lot of kind of, you know, geopolitical, financial, the, there's the liquidity in the market, you know, quantitative easing one through 73, 6 trillion in liquidity. And like, we'll get into that mess, but there's a lot of capital at play. And so they now recognize the power of our model and the, the businesses in our space. So they're going to put that capital work here. Now, with that comes a threat because I have folks that like, you know, agents with a $20,000 run rate tell me what their EBITDA is because, you know, everybody's getting a phone call. Someone wants to, you know, buy their business. We, we can't forget that the reason these businesses are attractive is because we've collectively done an amazing job of delivering all these complex solutions as they evolve to a really varied customer base in a super efficient manner and a kind of variable cost model, success-based model for the carriers. Well, if we forget that and we get too worried about what our EBITDA is and what our exit strategy is, then it's not going to matter. The businesses are worth nothing if we can't execute. So that, that's my only worry is that we might be too focused on you know, how much we can sell our businesses for. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the struggle of any any business and any startup. My my brothers made a career in startups, and there's so much money. It's, it's always fascinating to me because I've never been on that side of it. But there's so much money uh, in in uh, a startup takes on so much. Uh, so many losses, they accumulate losses in order to sell for, you know, the value of the intellectual property or something like that. And yeah. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm in the wrong business because for <laughs> like, you know, 20 years, I've had to produce an EBITDA number. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I always joke that I like companies that I can run like my first job. My first job, I was a paper boy and a paper route. So I would, I would take like, it was $42, $42 and I would buy, you know, it was with this big stack of the Patriot Ledger and I had the, my 26 homes that I delivered their papers to. And I would, you know, I'd pay my bill every week and they would drop off my papers, you know, daily. And I'd pick up my papers, I'd go out and, you know, stuff them in mailboxes and in front doors. And on Thursdays, I'd go around and collect and people would pay me their dollar ten a week for the paper. And I paid 68 cents per customer to the, to the Patriot Ledger. So that was my, my VIG. And then I got tips too. And I got to make this like really complicated business decision every week. It was like, would I, put, would I take $42 again and buy those newspapers so I could deliver them again next week and keep this going? And the difference between that 42 and whatever I collected, that was my profit. And right. I could invest. I could buy a really cool bag to help me carry them. I could, you know, up, upgrade my bike or I could, you know, buy candy or, you know, whatever else with my money, but I can make that decision. But I fully understood expense, revenue, 
profit. Uh, yeah. So I love businesses that operate that way. And I think that, that, you know, we'd all be better off if we get back to that principle a little bit. Or you could get some shiny new tattoos, right? Mike? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Exactly. <laughs> I, I see all those tattoos on your hand and on your arms and everywhere. That is that's, wild. That's my and, newest one. That's my newest one. That's, oh. that's, Atlas. that's Atlas. Do each of them have meaning? And, and I, yeah. I heard a little birdie tell me that you got them, most of them after 48, right? <laughs> yeah. So I have, oh. I have two. I have two silly tattoos from when I was a kid, you know, the Tasmanian devil with a golf bag over shoulder and the Red Sox logo. But um, at 48, when my son was, he was 17. And this is when you know your parent of the year. Um, when in Georgia, Georgia has a law that you can't get, a, you can't tattoo your child until they're 18 years old, even with parental permission. So we had to go to Alabama to get my 17 year old a tattoo. And, uh, <laughs> so, so while I was there, I got one and I couldn't decide which one I wanted. So the other 10 I wanted, I've gotten over the last, you know, five years since then. So, so are they all emotional? Are they, they all linked to something? They're all, it's like, I have kind of a left, right thing. So like on my right arm, I'm a real kind of libertarian Austrian economics nerd. So I've got like Menger, Hayek and Mises, the kind of rock stars of Austrian economics on my wrist. I've got the, the price equilibrium model, because we all know, you know, we all wake up every day knowing that prices dictate how we live our lives and that that's how we manage scarce resources, the movement of price and supply and demand. And, and Alfred Marshall, I thought was the, 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 he was the English economist, the British economist uh, in the 18th century who really kind of pushed that model of prices as, as the lever. Um, then, you know, those are deep, (laughs) like a butterfly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's all right. My other arm is my hippie arm. I've got like my herbivore tattoo because I live plant-based and my spirit animal is a sparrow. And I've got my be kind from uh, Ken Babs from the Merry Pranksters and, you know, that kind of stuff. I've got my right and my left is my serious side and my hippie side. So do you have a favorite one? Um, the, 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 the next one is my favorite one, but I'll say the last one. So, yeah, but, uh, but, uh, the, the Atlas tattoo, I like, I think that's really kind of vivid artwork, but <laughs> nice. I got nothing. Never, nothing. never. I'll, uh, I'll take you to my guy, Bruce. I'll take you to my guy. I'll get you inked up. One, Bruce, just one. Now I'm kind of a okay. wuss. I'm kind of a wuss. I don't think I could sit through, you know, sitting through the pain of doing it. And then the afterward, I mean, I, I, I generally am in a lot of pain every day because of my spinal condition. And I just feel like, you know, getting needled up on my skin. Uh, this, I don't know. What if I change my mind in 10 years and I'm just gonna have a big scar. You know, get something that can never change. Micah, I've got the perfect tattoo for Bruce. We're going to get funnel management across his throat. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Pipeline <Wow>. discipline. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, on a completely different subject, Kurt, one of the things that you said to me years and years ago, probably when we first met, is uh, you were talking about the channel and you talked about, you know, it really boils down to three things when you look at every partner. It's sell to, sell through, and sell with, and really mapping those things out for every partner. And I think in any in any distribution 
uh, channel, whether it's telecom or anything else, uh, you really have to understand those three things. Who are you selling to? How are you selling through? And then how do you sell with each other? Because if one of those things is broken, then the relationship is fractured. And there's a lot of agents that don't want the carrier in their business. They forget that they're actually representing the provider. And there's a lot of providers that forget that the agent is the only reason you have that customer. So tell me how you came up with that, that uh, I guess, credo and, uh, and how you, you've used it to your success. Well, it's, it's funny. My, my wife is a retired biology teacher. And so, and she would always be teaching her kids. She was talking about mutualism and symbiosis. And it was all these things, like whether it was like the remore that, that travels along with the shark and eats like the particles of food off and more like, you know, these, these animals that kind of find this, this mutual symbiotic relationship where everyone benefits. And again, I referred to kind of economics and kind of my geek around there. And you talk about Adam Smith and kind of the real simplicity of you and I, you have an apple, I have a dollar, we trade and we're both better off for it. You wanted the dollar more than the apple. I wanted the apple more than the dollar. We just grew the economy. That's symbiosis. And, and there's a benefit there. Well, in, in partnership, when we do it right, when we stop getting into that kind of vendor you know, you know, provider, seller, like the, you know, this, the adversarial side, if we truly say we're going to market together, then we're going to market together. It's a partnership. Now, the, the, the real important part of that credo is to sell to and sell through, because that's what I think a lot of providers miss. They come up with all kinds of marketing and messaging around how the customer consumes their products. And that's important. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Like you, the providers make the market. But the other thing they're selling, and I think they forget this, is they're selling a program. They're selling a partnership to the partner. And if they, if you don't like discern those two messages, what's important to the customer is, is also important to the partner because he's ultimately selling that, but it's just part of the story. What's the program? What, what do you have to get that partner to take whatever percentage of their mind share, wallet share, time, effort, and talent to focus on selling your platforms with you. And if you ignore that side of the message, or you do as a lot of providers do, they just repurpose their direct sales messaging for the channel. And they kind of, you put a different slick on it, let a partner throw a logo on it. You've missed like not only half the story, but what might be the most important part of the story as far as to move a program forward. And that's the program. Yeah. And that's interesting that you say that too, because I know I, I brought that up to the team uh, last week, you know, that partner experience, they're human beings, you know, what are we doing and what are other companies doing to be able to nurture that relationship? Because it starts there. So I love that you brought that up. It's very important and critical. And I feel like a lot of um, companies miss, miss that mark. And yeah. speaking of companies, and I know that you've been everywhere, You've been, been, you know, you've been in leadership for such a long, long, long time. And um, he's not even that old. Damn. Micah, that was cold. Long, long time. I mean, you're (laughs) okay. You're not old. (laughs) You're not old at all, but you've been in for for a while. And um, does that sound better? He's like me. Got started really young. Right, right. Yeah. Started really, really young. So what are your non-negotiables to leadership? What have you learned through all of those years and those different roles and leading teams? What is one, one thing that you took with you um, that just sticks with you in your journey in leadership? Well, it's going to sound a little bit cliche, but I'll talk a little bit about my journey and how important it was. But that, that you, you wake up every day and you do the next right thing for the next 
right things sake, you know, not in a transactional sense, but you, you operate with honesty and integrity because it's the right thing to do, not because you think it's going to get you more, um, that it's not transactional. And then the interesting thing is, is then it becomes transactional. You actually do better because of it. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So we had X4 for, you know, all those years, 12, 13 years where we had that company, we're a master agent, we're competing with other master agents and dealing with hundreds of providers. Well, we sold that business and, you know, after I, you know, after a year and a half with Sailor Partners kind of helped in the transition, I, I went and worked for Carrier. So I went and worked for Windstream. And so now I had to go to all my competitors as the channel chief, the president of, of strategic channels for Windstream. I had to go to all the other masters who I competed with for, for 13 years as my, they, they're now my key distributors. If I had operated even in a competitive environment dishonestly or, you know, unkind or, you know, a million different things without integrity, um, it would have been virtually impossible for me to do that. Instead, because I did the right thing over and over for its own sake, sometimes, you know, as my wife says, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so simple. I, I'm, I'm honest out of simplicity. It's just easier to get that way. But because of that, I was able to walk into all these doors. The doors were open to me. I had immediate respect and, and relationships with these folks um, that I wouldn't have had if I had maybe cut some corners and been, you know, as we like, you know, my generation, to, you know, Bruce and I's generation were been more ruthless or, you know, any of that stuff. So, so yeah, I think that speaks for itself before you walk into a room. So it looks like yeah. you did that amazingly. That's yeah, that's the hope. Thank you. It's, um, you know, I like to say it's empathetic transparency because I think it's very important to be transparent and uh, have people understand exactly what you're thinking, but you do it in a way that they can absorb it. So the person on the other side, they, I, I think leadership comes down to delivering messages and all, sometimes the same message to different people in ways that they can, they can soak it in. And, um, you know, I, I coach people to be very transparent, but do it in an empathetic way. And that's whether you're selling, whether you're you're being sold to, or whether you're coaching your your team members because well, everybody isn't, absorbs isn't that. Really, isn't that really what leadership is? Like anybody who's seen like anybody who's had a child play youth sports has seen good leadership and bad leadership. And the, the key distinction is obvious in children's sports. It's no different than when than running companies. But when you have a guy who's coaching eight-year-olds and he's talking about his team and talking about the, his win and what he did, like, I mean, it's about the leader in that situation. He's done it wrong. And you know, it's wrong. The kids know it's wrong and everybody viewing it. And then you have the other guy who it's all about the kids, that every minute of the day is about making the kids better, making the experience good for them. You know, th those kids then have a great experience. They improve that, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, ironically, their teams tend to win more and all that kind of fun stuff, you kind of goals versus results. But we in leadership, if, if, it's, if it's about our people all day, every day, like I, I've yet to find a company where if you as a leader can make every single one of your frontline people successful. So all your quota bearers hit their number, all your folks that deal with customers, partners, and each other on a daily basis, if they're all successful, I can't find a model where every layer of leadership above them won't be successful in that case. So like, let's stop trying to make ourselves successful. Let's make our people successful and understand that our success will be a result of that. See, speaking of that, right, um, in the workplace, there's tons of different age groups and age gaps, right? And <laughs> I see you smiling. <laughs> Zoomers and boomers, right? We got boomers and boomers. <laughs> what is it? What did you say? My AC kicked 
on. So if you hear it. Your AC yeah, kicked yeah. on my daughter's uh, bouncing around the kitchen doing something. COVID I, life. I, <laughs> I, I, heard, I heard someone describe the range in, of professionals today as Zoomers to boomers. So. <laughs> Zoomers to boomers. That's pretty. That's, that's, I like that. I like yeah, to feel that. They say that there's, okay, so there's Gen Zs, there's Millennials, there's Gen X. That's me. Boomers, right? So that's yeah. what, four different yeah. generations. Right. What, how can people manage different generational groups like that? Like what, what, what advice do you have? Because the way that a millennial will resonate or intake information is different from how a boomer might, or even how they view technology. Um, so what are your thoughts there? Well, it's, it's actually simple. It's just not easy. It's, it, it is really simple. And it's exactly what we just talked about. If it's about you and not me, then it doesn't matter what your perspective is, because I'm going to find out what that is. That my job as a leader is to give you what you need. That anytime I hear someone talk about my management style, they've already, they've already lost it. They've already missed. It's not about your style. You know, it's like the situational leadership. It's about what give them what they need. So, you, you, you know, if you have, you know, let's say you're in, a, you know, in an eight to one uh, roll up thing, you have eight charges, those eight people are going to need eight different things. If you don't take the time to understand what they need, then you've, you're not a leader. That's not leadership. Like if you're, if you're worrying about kind of your result, then you've already missed the boat. So like if, if you know, at any time I hear someone talk about, you know, I'm at or, you know, and they're a leader, I'm like, no, you're not at anything. You know, where are your people at? Because again, I've yet to find a model where if I'm managing eight people and all eight of those people are successful, that I also won't be successful. There, there are some leaders that do try to, um, I guess, make up the difference and they try to be that whole number themselves. And whether that's going out and trying to do it themselves or force feeding um, their own beliefs on how to do it onto people and I've never seen that work. And usually uh, it can work in a very small company, but it doesn't scale. Have you, um, have you run into those situations where in, uh, in your, your corporate life, you run into leaders that, you know, discount entirely the value of their team and they just focus on me, 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 me. This is the way to do it. And there's only one way. Well, it's all about me. It's all about me. Let's talk about me. Um, well, you know, ironically, well, let's talk about me. The reason I recognize that leader so well, Bruce, is I was that guy. You Ooh. know, I was that guy. I was, I'm going to drag you all kicking and screaming to, to the way that I need it done. And, what, you know, I would have, you know, six people working for me and I was the closer on every deal any of them did. And I was, you know, micromanaging the funnel. Like it was basically I had a funnel times six. I only sleep four hours a night anyway. So I felt that that was completely rational. And I, you know, basically that's how I operate. And you're right. It, it doesn't scale and it's a miserable way to live because then if anybody fails, you failed. Like you can't, like there's no way to separate yourself from that. So I recognize that leader because I was that leader. And, 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 you know, as you put it, there's, there's literally no way to do that. But I'll tell you, and I can only say this because, like I said, I was that leader. What drives that is fear. Yeah. I was afraid. I was 
scared. I was, we're all, I mean, we're all driven by fear. We're basically little kids in business suits at this point. We're just scared little kids in, in business clothes and we, we're out there just trying to get by. And I think that if we think of it that we, un, we understand how, you know, when someone acts ugly towards you, they're not doing it, doing anything to you. They're just trying to get through the day. It's just trying to figure out, you know, how to get to those things. So I tend to not take things personally because I understand they're doing that because I was scared. And when, you know, for me, fear meant that I had to exert authority. I had to take control and I had to own every little bit of, of the, of the, of the process. And there's a lot of misery that comes along with that too. Um, and it, it took me, I think, I think, you know, a little bit of rust, a little bit of age and, and kind of, you know, <laughs> spiritual progression will, will get you through some of that, but it's, I think it's always fear-based. And when I see a leader like that, you know, in my org, I manage them out of it. Cause I say, you're, you're going to, you know, a handful of things are going to happen. You're going to be miserable. You're going to destroy your family life. You're going to, your professional life isn't going to scale. Your people aren't going to develop. Um, you know, the, the magic of empowering people is watching them blossom, not so they can do it exactly like you would have, so they can do it different and better. You know, that this kind of idea of diversity of thought and a different way of doing things, we don't get any better if I have eight people who work for me who basically do an impersonation of Kurt. You know, the world doesn't need eight Kurt's. It needs, you know, seven, you know, kind of better, more creative minds and just one Kurt. Yes. Diversity in thought and diversity in mind works. And that's like my baby yeah. topic. I love it. Um I'm going to, I'm going to pivot a little bit. I know that you are a mentor to a lot of women in the lines of channel women. I actually saw a post the other day. Uh, one of my counterparts uh, in the board gave you a shout out and said that you were one of her mentors and you probably know who that person is. Um, so as far as, because you mentioned diversity, right? And diverse thought can make things successful. What is what are your viewpoints? Because I know when we, when you and I chatted, you're a huge advocate for for women, right? And women in tech. And um, so, what are your views? What do you think about that? What do you think of the importance of gender diversity in tech? So, you know, um, I talked a little bit about kind of philosophically being a libertarian. I think that individuals are kind of the the path to to solutions. I don't believe in institutional solutions. So, I, I think that it's about education, that it's not, that we never, nothing scales. If we force people to do things, if we point a gun at folks and say, hey, you're going to, I need you to hire people of this many people of color and this many women, then we'll do that. And we'll hit that bar, but that, that doesn't scale because it's institutional. If we teach people that diversity of thought, diversity of gender, diversity of ethnic background, all these things, the diversity period has a massive benefit to your business. And we show them that benefit then that will scale. So what, like um, I was very fortunate. Intercall was an interesting company. Intercall's Salesforce back in the day was 80% women, you know, Carolyn Bradfield and, you know, a handful of the senior leaders initially in that company intentionally and consciously built that business thinking we're going to give women, and this is, you know, fairly progressive. This is the nineties. So it wasn't, I'm not talking about last week, but we're going to give women an opportunity to, to um, excel and rise up to the ranks in these, sales jobs, highly lucrative sales jobs, moves it, move into leadership positions. They built policies, you know, not standardized kind of the federal government telling you to do this, but policies. Whereas if you, as a sales rep at Intercall, wanted to leave and raise a child, you could, you forfeit your base salary, stay home, make commissions, manage your base. They would, you know, make you a contract to keep your health insurance up and running and you could stay home as long as you wanted. We had women making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, managing our largest customers, 
while they raised their children at home. Awesome. Um, not because, not as a gift to those women, but because it was the right thing for our business. We kept continuity with customers and we just showed some flexibility. So um, that was a really good lesson for me, both being around kind of really powerful, super talented women and, and seeing how effective they can be in what were typically male roles. Um, but then just that idea that, that you can do things intentionally and deliberately and that's how we move the needle on things. So one of the things Mike and I talked about is I admitted that there are times in my career where I took the easy way out, where I was working, working for a large organization and I hired the, you know, the guy who had had that same job three times in a row and had a modicum of success, super easy decision and didn't take the chance on someone who maybe looked a little bit different or was younger or was a woman. And, uh, and so I look back on that with you know, regret, like I, you know, I give myself a break, like I understand why I made these decisions. But I think now at this stage of my life, and especially in my uh, consulting practice, is we can talk about how we need to be intentional with mm -hmm. some of the decisions we make. And not just because it's the right thing to do from a kindness perspective and a compassion perspective, but it's the right thing for our businesses. Right. We have to stop kind of, you know, rehashing the same people and kind of cycling the same people through these jobs. We've got to Kind of look at things with a different That's very important. You have to do it and you have to know that you're doing it because there's a difference right. that has to be made. So I love that you are, that you're bringing it out to the forefront and is one of your core values. So I thank you. That's like my, my baby topic. Bruce is probably tired <laughs> of hearing me talk about it. <laughs> no, I, I feel like, uh, and I say this all the time, to be successful, you're selling to people and, and every organization is selling something. You're selling to people who are of every size, shape, color, gender, race, and you have to have the same people in your organization. And for me, um, I guess I think like you in that I want to lead by example and yeah. and really have a a very diverse organization that can, can connect with many different types of people. I, I think that's just so important. And uh, when I hire and I, and my, my, my leadership team knows this, I don't, I will always challenge my sales leaders on bringing me somebody that uh, this person has, uh, you know, a three page resume and was successful back in 2015 I, I don't care about what you did yesterday as much as what you'll do tomorrow. NFL teams, NBA teams, Major League Baseball teams fail because they overpay free agents that were good three years ago. I want to know what you're going to do next year and the year after that. And your job as a leader is to make that person great and get the most talent out of them. So, well, no judgment you know, zone for Bruce. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going to give you an amen too. Cause I, like I talked about, yeah, amen. And, and, you know, I talk about that all the time that if, if somebody comes to me with the aptitude that they present, so they've got the kind of the necessary aptitude, then it's, it's my job as a leader to put them in a position to be successful. And so if they fail, um, it's because I failed you know, that unless they were dishonest with me and, and they weren't putting the effort forward. And we talk about, you know, at X4, one of my favorite stats that we had at X4 is the last eight and a half years we had that business. We didn't have a single person leave the company, um, awesome. period. We didn't, we didn't have to fire anyone and nobody left voluntarily in the last eight and a half years we had that company. And we occasionally moved people around, but it was like, you know what? This person is working her rear end off 
she's just not a fit for where she's at. So where can we, where can we redirect that passion into something that she can find joy in? Because that's what we forget. Nobody likes to talk about this except, you know, especially our generation, Bruce, but it's not supposed to hurt. Like success doesn't have to be painful. I think we children of the, you know, I was born in the sixties, but kind of being raised in the eighties that we kind of thought leadership was about inflicting pain on those underneath us to put our thumb on them and force them to do the uncomfortable to get things done. I just don't believe it. Like, I think that we, you know, I love when people who have been in my organizations talk about how they worked with me that, you know, that uh, I, I, I hate when people say they work for me. That's I talk awesome. about you know, people that worked with me and that we all have different roles. If you're doing it right as a leader, you're in service to your people, that your job is to facilitate their success. And I'll kind of take it full circle that if everybody, again, what did I say, Micah, that if, if you show me an organization where everybody on the street is successful and the leaders aren't, it'll be the first one I've ever seen. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. You are amazing, Kurt. <laughs> I'm just like, I had to soak that in for a little bit. <laughs> so your future now, right? Um, what does it look like? What does it look that, like for you now? I feel like you've done it all. So what does it look like? Well, I, I really, you know, I, I hope that this, this, that Eagle Tech is really kind of what retirement looks like for me because I don't sit still really well. So this is kind of really cool. I get to work with great organizations and work with sales leaders and try to, kind of impart some of the strategic wisdom, I guess, but more that kind of tactical go to market, routes to market, really kind of cool, get stuff done, consulting. It's, it's really uh, kind of what's always lit my fire. And then um, the next thing for me is my, my son and I are shopping for property in the greater Jacksonville, Florida area. Um, to we want to open a wakeboard park. My son's a competitive wakeboarder. He lives at the Valdosta Wake Compound in Valdosta, nice. Georgia while he's finishing college. So our goal is to, to find uh, a 15 acre lake somewhere in, in uh, greater Jacksonville, because there's a hole in the market there and, and open a wakeboard park and with live entertainment and tattoo parlors. And, That's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> what happened to Panama and Costa Rica? That's what I thought you were going. Oh, I'm going to Costa Rica. <laughs> my, my, my wife is, uh, is fighting me on that, but I will, uh, I will outsource my retirement to Costa Rica at some point, but uh, there'll be a wake, there'll be a wake park in Florida with my son first. You know, that's how, that's how Josh Dickinson at Hypercore built his business. He was, he has a, a house down in Costa Rica and he, he, uh, he would court all of the master agents by saying, Hey, you know, let's just hang out at my place in Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah. I just, I need something with like a big gate and I need to be left alone. <laughs> yeah. Don't bother me. <laughs> yeah, well, shout out to Josh Dickinson. Shout out to Carolyn Bradfield. Carolyn, if it's not for you, uh, we wouldn't. Uh, we might be talking now, but Kurt and I wouldn't have had so much history to make this so easy. Um, Kurt, this was great. This was, um, you know, just a really nice conversation that carried on for uh, for a good amount of time. So we appreciate <laughs> you. And I always say, if this if this podcast, which um, I mean. The numbers are phenomenal. Uh, we had over 15,000 views on um, uh, Janet Shine's uh, uh, chat. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we just appreciate everybody that's listening and everybody that's tuning in. But if just one person gets something out of what uh, either us or our guests are saying, I think it's a, it's a real win. So well, we appreciate well, your wisdom. Well, I'll tell you, Janet Shines, you mentioned, who's literally one of my favorite human beings on the planet, and she has a business similar to what we're trying to do. So shout out to Janet, too, that 
um, she's a she's a model of what you know good consulting looks like. So uh, we're we're you know hopefully out there kind of carrying that same banner as her. But you also have Reggie Scales, who is my partner in crime over at Vonage. So um, I'm going to have to keep track of the stats, and um, I will I may open up a marketing budget to, to market my episode just so I can sneak past. There you go. We'll take it. <laughs> take it. We'll just take a ten percent, uh, you know, kicker towards, uh, you know. Exactly. Can you buy clicks, or is that like a twenty sixteen thing? <laughs> um, you know, I I don't I don't think uh, with podcasts you can do it. I know um, I know like YouTube has it. You can you know get followers. Um, I don't know. All that stuff is uh, like dark to me. I, I think, um, you know, I believe in organic marketing. I think that's the, the right thing to do. Everybody should do that. Um, don't buy clicks because it's very transparent. There you go. <laughs> well, Kurt, thanks Thank so much. Kurt. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks, Micah. Thanks, Bruce. All right. We'll be right back to wrap it up on the other side. This is Next Generation Leadership right here. Don't go away. In a world where businesses are striving to adapt, connect, and evolve, we're here to bring you more. More freedom to work how and where you want while keeping employees connected, productive, and engaged. More flexibility to customize solutions to tailor a simple, more agile network. And more security for an evolving cyber landscape with around-the-clock access to hands-on technical support. It's time to explore more. Welcome back. Episode nine of Next Generation Leadership. What a fantastic chat with Kurt Allen. It was like a conversation. It wasn't even like an interview. Yeah, it was so good. I, I'm still shocked that he got most of his tattoos at 48, like after 48. Like, No, thank you. I don't think I want to go through that pain. I don't. No, I don't want to. Do you, do you have tattoos? I have. I have like five and some are my, on my ribs on my leg, like the, the worst pain, the worst places you can get tattoos. That's yeah. Right. See, I, I, the pain has always kept me away. It, it was never that important to me to make something permanent and endure not just the pain, but the after effects, like, you know, the bandaging and all this, forget it. I don't need it. I don't need it. Oh, but, you need one, Bruce, just one. Nope. <laughs> nope. Oh, Maybe someday I'll get telesystem across my forehead or something like that. We go to Vegas for channel partners. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'll get divorced for the third time when I, I, I did four, the third time when I get back home. No, no, you don't want that. No. no, I need uh, <laughs> this one's a keeper. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, for hanging with us through the whole episode. What do we got next? Next week is just going to be uh, uh, brain dumping from, from you and I, it'll be whatever is annoying me for that particular week on I'm LinkedIn. So or, to hear what that is. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get there. Um, you know, prospecting without knowing who you're prospecting to, that kind of thing, something something along those lines. But who's our next guest coming up in two weeks? Yeah, so we have Mike Onestack from TBI, who's the senior vice president over there. Excited to have him on. And we have Kelly Danziger, who's the GM and the VP of channels at Informa. Channel oh, love One it. of the largest media brands for the channel. So awesome. pick her brain a little bit. Well, if we're going to get Kelly, we're going to have to have Burge at some point. We have to have equal uh, oh, representation. For <laughs> equal. Uh, well, Burge is the channel vision yeah. head over there for those that don't know. I, I'm just, I just, I'm sorry. Yeah, I should have, uh, I should have 
I should have assumed. And, and, you know, we try to present this as a non-telecom, although we seem to, our guests that, that reach out to us seem to continue to be in that space. But we'll try to, we'll keep trying to branch out. I know Mike is working on um, some really big guests. We'll some keep- big guests coming up right now is just logistical things that are happening. But um, once all of those things get done, I we're, we can announce fully and um, and have conversations with them. But for till now... It's red tape. The approval process. All right. Thanks for listening. Uh, This has been uh, just an awesome chat. Just one person, if one person gets uh, a tip that helps their career from something that Kurt said or Mike or I said, then it's a win for us. So until next time for uh, the great Mike Rosales-Peterson, I'm Bruce Wirt. We'll be back on Next Generation Leadership. In a world where businesses are striving to adapt, connect, and evolve, we're here to bring you more. More freedom to work how and where you want while keeping employees connected, productive, and engaged. More flexibility to customize solutions to tailor a simple, more agile network. And more security for an evolving cyber landscape with around-the-clock access to hands-on technical support. It's time to explore more.